the most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. This was a challenging week for Premier Doug Ford and his governing progressive conservatives at Queen's Park. Public opinion polls in the last week are suggesting most Ontario residents think he's on the wrong track by cutting funding retroactively to public health and child care. This past week, Ford tried to counter this impression by offering municipalities across the province an independent auditor to find deficiencies in local governments, including the city of Toronto's. Mayor John Tory called the offer a $7 million public relations exercise by the government of Ontario. And Tory says the city already uses an independent auditor to find ways to save money. But the provincial PCs say Toronto City Councillors have ignored most of the recommendations made by Toronto's Auditor General. We begin with the perspective of the Ford PCs. The Premier's Parliamentary Secretary and MPP Stephen Lecce joined Libby to discuss. The people of Ontario gave us a mandate to return our budget to balance after the fact that we have a $15 billion deficit and we have the largest debt of any province or state in the world. And I think it is um, difficult for folks back listening to a program across Toronto to accept the premise of the mayor of Toronto, who is a partner and we work with closely, but that there isn't waste to be found in Toronto. And so when I hear politicians, including you know many of whom in good faith with great altruism in their voice, are suggesting, no, 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 there's no fat to be cut here, I just don't believe it. This is the Toronto Sun, huge right. supporter of your government, the editorial We agree with Mayor John Tory and other municipal leaders that it was unfair for Ford to announce retroactive cuts to provincial funding, given that municipalities can't run deficits and their 2019 budgets are already set. Is that a fair comment? No, what I think is unfair is that taxpayers are essentially being asked to delay this exercise by another year. And the constant refrain of politicians of any stripe, say, try to defer the problem down the road, kick it down the, to the next generation, maybe another year or two, and that there's always an excuse to defer leadership and action. And so, look... Yeah, but you yourself, you're not stop, balancing the budget for quite a few years. Well, we campaign on returning to balance, and we came up with a plan that returns us to balance without having to make any dramatic reductions in spending in the areas that matter. And with respect to the city and to municipal governments, I mean, in Ontario, 90%, just over 90% of Ontario's spending goes to transfer payments to municipalities, to agencies, etc. So the assumption in the question is, you know, why not wait? Isn't that a reasonable request? Well, when 90 cents of the dollar is going out the door to these agencies and municipalities, the expectation is, you know, we could do our part for the 10 cents that we retain control over. But for the overwhelming majority, we need our partners to work with us. And finding four cents of the dollar is a healthy exercise that any good organization, nonprofit, corporation does. I mean, they are basically saying that they would prefer to act going forward and that they can't make it work retroactively. And you've had a bunch of polls or several polls in in the last week or so, which show that people don't believe your arguments. They think the province is on the wrong track with the way these cuts 
are happening. We've seen the premier who, you know, generally has been one of the most popular guys I've ever seen. Suddenly he's getting booed at public events. And I have to say this is completely unscientific. But even here on this show where the vast majority of people support him, I've started to get calls from people saying, I regret voting. For, for Doug Ford. So do you recognize that the way this is happening is uh, turning people off? I actually want to work across levels of governments to deliver savings for the taxpayer. And look, I'll give an example of how we did it without having to make any reductions in back office spending. We literally, by the, by the through our Treasury Board, um, were able to realize upwards of a billion dollars every single year simply by centralizing procurements across government. Essentially, all the things we buy, we now centralize through one agency. So our purchasing power, uh, you know, we, we get better value for a dollar by, by buying in higher volume at a lower unit cost. That is a simple example that we do in the province that the government, the former Liberal government, didn't do. See, we wouldn't be having this discussion, Libby, if political actors across party lines in municipal government had the courage to, to ensure value for money. I mean, this is not, a, I mean, Libby, this is, fairly common sense. Centralized procurement, get greater value for your dollar. Any reasonable, credible organization does this. Yet in 2019, we're just doing it. And so why is it that in Toronto, that proposal wasn't enacted? Why is it that it requ- the premier had to bring this issue forward to, the, to, the, to, the, uh, to bring some light on it, that we're now talking about, quote, common sense ideas like centralizing procurement? The fact is it should have been done. And the premier is saying, and he signaled this when we got elected, every level of government has to do their part. We are not going to defer the problem. We are not the party. This premier is not the leader who is going to defer the problem on our children. We're going to act. We're going to deal with these issues today. We're going to get our fiscal house in order. And we're going to protect the services that are so foundational, so vital uh, to the so existentially to our lives, our quality of life, our health, and our ability to be able to afford a roof over our head and, and put food over our table. So for us, this is a moral act. Intergenerational debt is wrong. We pay a billion dollars every month in interest rates and in interest payments. We actually spend more on interest than we do in hospitals in Ontario. I mean, that is just an unacceptable proposition. The premier is saying enough is enough. And I think common, and I think a lot of folks out there across party lines are saying, get on with it and end the waste. That was MPP and Parliamentary Secretary to Premier Doug Ford, Stephen Lecce. You are listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Now we turn to the view from City of Toronto politicians on the budget audit offer from Premier Doug Ford. Libby was joined by Councillor Mike Layton, Deputy Mayor and Audit Committee Chair Councillor Stephen Holliday, and Budget Chief Councillor Gary Crawford. With regard to the Auditor General's reports, we actually, through the budget process, report out on the efficiencies and the savings. We actually highlight that as part of the process. But we have already committed to, uh, as I said, the vast majority of the recommendations uh, are implemented. They do take a little bit of time. With regard to efficiencies, with regard to the ability to actually go into and open up a 2019 budget, we do not have that ability to find the kind of efficiencies that are being suggested, that 4%. Uh, Our city staff that in the last four years have found over $90 million in just in modernization processes, we've actually found close to $100 million in true efficiencies. These are the line-by-line efficiencies of going in and looking at all the individual budgets. We have done that. We already have a third-party uh, Auditor General. We spend $6.6 million a year, and that is 36 permanent people who are going through uh, line-by-line all the diversity 
businesses and agencies all across the city, and they are finding the kind of savings and the kind of efficiencies we need. So we're already actively doing that on a very day-by-day, month-by-month basis. The challenge we're having, of course, is the retroactivity, as everybody has been mentioning. To be able to go in and find those efficiencies, they are not there. There are efficiencies. We can always find efficiencies, but the volume of what is suggested we can find in a matter of months and weeks is just not realistic at all. Councillor Holliday, so is this offer of bringing in an outside auditor, is, is it kind of an insult, or how would you characterize it? Look, uh, all of us are open to suggestions on how we could do it uh, differently, how we could do it better. I'm sure the auditor would love to hear uh, from that. Uh, Is there always room for improvements? There are. Uh, But I don't think anyone is going to simply find a several hundred million dollar magic solution on a single line item. If you brought in a special auditor today, it would take them six months of work to go through all of these lines and try to find savings that we haven't found yet. And that would put us at the end of 2019. And as it goes so far, City Council still has a several hundred million dollar hole to fill. So to reinforce the point, to chop that money in the middle of the year, turning the ship that fast is just not a realistic option. Mike Leighton, it seems to me that they seem to rely a lot on outside consultants and then act very quickly on these reports. What's your take on that? Well, I think what we're seeing is a, is a government that doesn't have any direction. They're, they're kind of running in all these different directions at the same time, um, thinking that, uh, that they can pass on these, these so-called efficiencies to other levels of government. Uh, let's take child care for an example. They came out saying, we're making a cut to the administrative uh, uh, end of, uh, of, uh, of the child care uh, cost. The, the problem is, they're not telling you two things. One, the province man- mandates a certain level of, uh, of administration, and the city does quite well at administering that, and it's a small fraction of, of the overall budget of, uh, of children's services. Uh, and then the second piece is, well, only 15% of the cut that go was, was from administration. The vast majority was for subsidies for low-income families. And then there was a large chunk that, that was from programs that were for uh, training childcare workers to help accommodate uh, uh, children with special needs. Uh, they, they just fail to tell you that, well, well, no, it's just administrative. And then they, they leave out the, the meat of it all, which is the cuts to the, to the actual subsidies and the changes to, to the formula that funds, uh, funds subsidies, meaning the municipality is now going to be on the hook. That's just downloading one of their so-called efficiencies for municipalities to implement. Stephen Holliday, where do you think we are left with this? What they've asked us to do is is not realistic. Um, they're putting us in a position that uh, that requires us to cut services in order to fill the hole that they've essentially downloaded on the city. Um, I look forward to working with them over time uh, because all of us, uh, right and left of council, always want to look for the efficiencies, but I don't think it's fair to turn the channel and say it's all about finding efficiencies. It really is a difference in transfer of money from the province and that it has been their choice to make. Councillor Crawford, are you hopeful that uh, you can reach an accommodation on this and maybe get one-time mon- money or whatever? Absolutely, and, and I think Council was very clear last week that we, we need accommodations and the one-time relief for 2019. We will look at the conversations for 2020 and the bigger issues, but 2019 is, is critically important for us right now.
Toronto City Councilors Gary Crawford, Mike Layton, and Stephen Holliday. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. King Street has become more pedestrian-friendly over the past couple of years. Now there is a push to make Young Street downtown easier to get around for pedestrians. The water mains under downtown Young Street need to be replaced, meaning the street has to be dug up. So city planners want to seize the opportunity to redevelop a stretch of the iconic roadway. According to a new environmental assessment report from the city, some 238,000 people walk the sidewalks of Young between Queen and College Streets over 24 hours on an average summer day. Up to 75% of people using Young are pedestrians, and over the last 20 years, walking has doubled while driving has decreased by 17%. One of the ideas being considered is wider sidewalks along Young Street. That would involve losing some lanes for driving. Public consultations have also pointed to the need for a better streetscape with more greenery. In fact, six possible alternatives have been introduced, including making Young downtown car-free. Libby was joined by City Councilor Kristen Wong-Tam and Mark Garner of the Young Street Business Improvement Area. We've done uh, various different projects as the Downtown Young BIA, whether it was Celebrate Young or a strategic visioning strategy that we've implemented, to try and, you know, hear from the public what do we love about Young Street and what do we hate about Young Street and what needs to change. This is a generational opportunity. The last time Young Street was opened was 1948 to 1952 to put the subway system in. So when you have these type of infrastructure projects, how do we implement it? And it's very clear that, you know, a better pedestrian experience is a top priority. But then what does that look like? What are the other amenities that need to be in there? The question that I have, Kristen Wong-Tam, is that when you base these ideas on numbers that you get in the summer, I mean, in in, in the winter, you're not going to get all those people walking anywhere. Um, that's not necessarily true. The data shows that whether it's summer, uh, autumn, um, or the winter or fall, uh, p- pedestrians are actually the highest uh, users of the street, uh, and that uh, includes the hundreds of thousands of them every day that traverse up and down Young Street, um, and that is the primary and first choice of, uh, of transportation. People are literally walking out of the subways, walking off the streetcars, uh, walking across Young Street to get from one, uh, one building in Ryerson to another building at the Ryerson an expanded campus or coming to the, the busiest uh, shopping um, uh, center in Canada, uh, people are mostly walking. Uh, and it doesn't matter whether it's seasonal or, or not. Um, I will note that, um, uh, and, and Mark actually alluded to this as well, is that when we uh, launched the pilot project uh, in 2012 called Celebrate Young, uh, what we did was just for, very gently for four weeks um, reallocate about four and a half uh, meters of, uh, of roadway to pedestrian uh, activity. Um, and it was just like, a, it was a very light, what we call a light ur- urban uh, intervention. Um, and people were just so quick to jump on it. Like people were basically utilizing these 11 theme patios and zones, uh, opportunities for restaurants that did not exist before, such as uh, licensed um, uh, opportunities for, uh, for animation and food operations. And, and people just really had a wonderful time. And sometimes you didn't have to buy anything. We just gave people extra space to, to sort of linger and, and enjoy 
enjoy the street, and people took advantage of it. And because it was a pilot project, we didn't spend a lot of money, so there wasn't uh, a lot of um, uh, expensive infrastructure that was brought in. But what it did demonstrate was that it could be done, and that uh, the businesses, uh, especially the restaurants and bars, they certainly saw an uptake in, uh, in uh, pedestrian um, uh, customer counts, and also their sales went up. Young Street has always been the convening place for Torontonians. When the Blue Jays won the World Series, everybody went there. And hopefully when the Raptors win the NBA championship, everybody's back to Young and Dundas to celebrate that success. Young Street has always played that iconic role. And we have to look at, is Young Street an event space? It is a convening space. And if it is, then the design falls out from that. It's played this iconic role. We see this being one of the iconic main streets in Canada. How do we continue that legacy going forward based on the Torontonians that are moving into the city and, and want to be out in space? Kristen Wong-Tam, uh, what would you like to leave us with on this? Young Street's uh, time has come. Uh, we all have some emotional attachment to the street, especially those who grew up in Toronto. Uh, this street represents so much to, to so many people and, and for the past few generations. And I would like Young Street to be known as the great street in Toronto and one of the greatest downtowns uh, in uh, North America. And in order for us to sort of hit that mark and, and make it really exciting and relevant for the next generation, then we're going to have to put some time and energy and our creative power and some dollars into making it that great street. And I know we can do it. And I, I love the fact that Mark and his BIA is, is so visionary and they're part of the conversation. And I thank you and your listeners for giving us this chance to explain what, what is happening on Young Street. Okay. And Mark, what would you like to leave us with? These types of things, the city is ready for this type of stuff. There's conversations now around nighttime economy and how this city needs to compete globally and it's time it's it is a generational opportunity what i'm trying to remind myself of is in part of this process is this is not for me the work that we're doing is not for me it's for the future generations so we have to think 30 40 50 years out and when we have this infrastructure opportunity we've got to do it Mark Garner of the Young Street BIA and Toronto City Councillor Kristen Wong-Tam. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Do you still have a mortgage in your Zoomer years? Even 20 years ago, it was unusual to carry a mortgage into your late 50s and 60s. Now, a new report from the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation says not only are seniors carrying mortgages, but they're the group most likely to be delinquent on their mortgages. And this could be in part because older Canadians are still providing financial assistance to adult children. Genevieve Lapointe of CMHC joined Libby to discuss the trend. We've been monitoring those numbers closely, and uh, it's 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 a trend we've been seeing happening in the past uh, few quarters and well, we'll say few years. Uh, so the the the, sh- the share of consumer with a mortgage that are aged 55 or more continue to grow, while when we look at younger households, it's more the opposite we're seeing due to a slowing uh, demand in homeownership. Um, so it's 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 a thing that we're monitoring closely, and it seems it seems also that uh, it's it's uh, it confirms another study that uh, StatsCan has released uh, that is showing that over the past decade, older households have been carrying larger debt loads later in life. And so, what are the reasons for this? Well. There's there's one positive uh, side to it, which is uh, basically older households may have 
simply greater capacity to access credit relative to younger ones because many have access to home equity or other assets. So it might be a way to uh, uh, invest more or uh, increase their consumption. So that may be the reason why they are increasing their debt load. However, that makes them more vulnerable to potential shocks in the economy or events in their life that could prevent them from making their payments on time. One thing, when we look at things, for sure, we look at it on average. And and for sure, based on price appreciation that we have seen over the last few years, um, one thing that can also explain the level of indebtedness we're seeing right now is is kind of a wealth effect. So so people are using the equity that they built on, on their house to increase their consumption or to invest or to to maintain their consumption level. Um, so so that might be also one of the factors that is coming in the, the, the level of indebtedness that we are seeing even later in life. Jean-Vierre Lapointe, what would you like to leave us with? Well, for sure, like right now we are in a situation, yes, we're, where we see uh, debt levels that are high. And even though like we see the currency rates um, mortgages increase for uh, people age over 65, it still remains very low. And part of the reason is that it's it's still fairly easy around like Toronto as well as most metropolitan, uh, metropolitan areas across the country to sell your house because um, mortgage um, houses market are, are tight and serving sellers, especially in most affordable parts. Um, uh, of the market, so it's it's still an option that is available for uh, for households that are a bit more financially strained. So it contributes to explain why delinquency rates are, are low despite this high uh, indebtedness level. That was Genevieve Lapointe of the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the week. Doug in Lindsay phoned to give his analysis on what Premier Ford is doing to find efficiencies. I don't think he has found efficiencies. All he's done is cut the various uh, health care, education, et cetera, and foisted that onto the municipalities. I don't see that he's had any efficiencies himself. Keith in Stouffville called to say he thinks Toronto City Councillors can find efficiencies by taking the Premier up on his offer of an outside audit. The council didn't start out very well. That they're going to look for efficient, uh, you know, for efficiencies in different things by giving themselves a raise and and hiring uh, uh, four or five people. I don't know how many more people because they said they need them because they cut council or whatever. You know, that's a load of baloney. I think you know. So, I mean, if they if we saw if I'm sure if the government saw something from the council that they were that they might find some efficiencies. You know. That might, things might be a little bit better for them, you know? Linda in Chesley called to explain the challenges she's facing in funding her retirement. I'm 72, and um, I have a small mortgage. The plan was to have a car paid for and a mortgage paid for, but my husband passed away, and I ended up in a... All I could afford to come back down from the north was a mobile in a park close to Shelburne, and if the, the mobile was paid for. It was a beautiful... Mobile, but the park fees were $500 a month. And I thought, why am I paying park fees 
I can get a house in Shaftley for less than that. And that's what I did. I just, I just renewed for five more years and uh, I'll never see it paid off. Not when I'm 72. I do not have a TV service. I haven't had TV for seven years and I don't miss it. I don't have internet because my little house backs onto the hospital and I can pick up uh, free Wi-Fi from the hospital or the library. My plan is to stay here as long as I can, and the house value will go up. And then when I'm ready to go into retirement place, maybe then I can afford to go into Chartwell or somewhere. <laughs> and now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Joan in Burlington, who's figured out the best way to fund her retirement while staying in her own home. I'm 84 years old. I have been a widow for almost 11 years, and I decided to sell my house so I don't have to worry of mortgages, taxes, upkeep of the house. I rent it back from my daughter and son-in-law. I took the money, the equity I had in the house, and I have invested it. And I'm, I'm quite comfortable. The reason I wanted to stay here rather than go to an apartment is because I have vision problems. I know the house upside down. I know the area where I live, and I'm quite comfortable. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio. AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Michelle Saunders, Justin Eacock, and Kelly Robotham.